Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. My guest this week is Nick Himanitis. Nick is an attorney, certified fraud examiner, and certified cryptocurrency forensic investigator. What does that mean? Well, that's a fancy way of saying that he is a high-end, sophisticated, and technologically proficient private investigator. And if you are trying to hide assets from your spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse, beware because Nick and his team at NGH Group are going to find your secret stash, no matter what it is, whether it's Cayman Island bank accounts, bearer bonds stashed in the safe deposit box, hidden real estate, or hundreds of thousands in Bitcoin. Nick and his team are experts in hunting down assets that are hidden that people don't want you to find. This was a very interesting conversation with a very interesting guy who's both an expert in his field and an entrepreneur. He left the law because he saw an opportunity for him to provide a service in this field. I think it's pretty fascinating. Why are we talking about marriage? This is episode number three out of our, I think we're doing four episodes on marriage and high-end divorce. Why are we talking about this stuff? Well, I think as you get older, and we all we all know couples that have gone through divorces. Many of us know couples who have gone through very bad divorces We know people who are very high-end people, very high-net-worth people who have gone through divorces. And, you know, when you start to learn about these things, you go, man, I hope I never have to go through that, most importantly. But more to the point, it makes you ask, if I did have to go through that, what's it like, number one? And number two, how do I maintain my integrity? How do I maintain my, my values? How do I go through this incredibly, unfathomably difficult time without making massive mistakes. And that's really, I think, the common theme that when you look at the crazy stories you hear around around divorce is that people get crazy emotional, understandably, and they end up doing stupid things. And we talk about some of the stupid financial decisions people make, the criminal financial decisions some people make when going through a divorce in this conversation with Nick Hemonitis. So we've got Nick Hemonitis here. Thanks for joining Crazy Money today. My pleasure. You've got a very interesting job. If I was sitting next to you on an airplane and I said, so Nikki, what kind of business are you in? How would you answer that question? I would start by saying nobody but my oldest cousin <laughs> and my late mom called me Nikki. So that's, we have to start there. <laughs> fair, fair. I, I apologize. That's all right. My job covers uh, a wide range of stuff, a a lot of which has to do with financial investigation and high-tech financial investigation, most recently, uh, meaning the last four or five years, a lot of crypto investigation, which there's not a lot of people doing. According to your website, you're an attorney, a licensed private investigator, certified fraud examiner, certified computer forensic specialist, Certified cryptocurrency forensic investigator and qualified expert witness. How does a guy get into that game? (laughs) Well, that's a long list. I have to uh, refresh myself on that list myself. Well, that's, I guess, an interesting story. For me, it just felt like a natural progression. I was an investigator. I, I went to college. I studied criminal justice and security administration technology back before that was even really a thing or just barely starting to become a thing. I took a job as an investigator, was working as an investigator for three or four years. I worked with a lot of lawyers at the time, found myself thinking to myself, but not saying out loud, hey, 
I could do a lot of what they're doing better than they're doing it. And went to law school, got out of law school, did well, practiced law for a couple of years. What kind of law did you practice? Interesting. I guess technically, most lawyers would call it bankruptcy and creditor's rights is the official name of the field. I basically wound up, when they saw my background, they said, oh, he's going to be our financial investigation and financial fraud litigation guy. So most of the work I did had to do with, you know, investigating and litigating uh, financial fraud inside and outside of bankruptcy cases, some international stuff, et cetera. Corporate stuff, though, right? Yes, uh, for the most part, corporate stuff, yeah. yeah. And then just after a few years uh, working at a couple of big law firms doing that kind of work, I didn't mind the work so much as I did, you know, the working 22 hours a day kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. and, and said, uh, you know, I'm going to take these two things that I love doing, you know, investigating and, and the legal side of things. And I just walked out of my last full-time legal job and said, I'm going back to doing investigations full-time. The theme of this of this podcast episode is high net worth divorce. How experienced are you in that practice? Very, very. How long have you been doing it? What does the typical engagement look like? I've been doing it for... I'm going to say almost 30 years or around 30 years. But really, if we're talking about high net worth divorce, probably 20 something years. Yeah. And what does it look like? Well, it's changed. It used to look like when I started doing those kind of cases, financial investigation, because at least I'm in New York and in New York, fault in connection with divorce went away back, I think, around 1980. It's now a no-fault state, like a lot of states. Yeah, right. Meaning we don't care who's having an affair with whom. Exactly. We don't care who you slept with, how many times, or anything else, (laughs) unless there are a couple of exceptions to that, and it does come into play, unless you took marital funds and spent a whole lot of it on your girlfriend or boyfriend or significant other during the course of the marriage. That raises something that we do get into quite a bit called marital waste. Um, you know, and they don't mean, you know, going out to dinner and, you know, <laughs> right, buying right. some modest gifts or flowers. They mean, you know, you bought your girlfriend a condo in South Jersey and a Mercedes and, you know, paid all her bills for five Like the Goodfellas set up. Exactly. That's the classic <laughs> example of marital waste. And that's the only time, you know, having a, a significant other or extramarital affairs really comes into play. But back to what I was saying, things have changed a lot. When I started doing high net worth divorce cases, we were doing financial investigation, but we were tracking down undisclosed bank accounts, right? Undisclosed business interests and sources of income and where did someone hide the cash, Mm. right? What banks did they have safe deposit boxes that they were going to make in cash deposits or, you know, these kind of things, right? So, okay, maybe I have a Cayman Islands account with some cash or stock or bonds in it. How do you find that out? Where do you start digging? I could tell you that, but you can fill in the rest of the statement. <laughs> Trade secrets. Trade um, secrets. We'll be clear uh, that, that it, I'm not going to ask it, you any of your clients' names, nor am I going to ask you to divulge any trade secrets. But if you want to yeah. just offer me some um, general directions that are non... So I, I will. And I'll say, you know, the answer is very different if we're talking about here in the United States, or as you asked, we're talking about the Cayman Islands or you know anywhere in Europe, South America, you name it. 
if it's outside the U.S., we're working with partners in those countries. Anyone who tells you they could sit down on a computer here in the United States and effectively find somebody's undisclosed bank account in the Cayman Islands or in Europe or in South America is selling you a bill of goods. Mm. You need to be working with partners in those jurisdictions who have their own proprietary trade secret type methodology, right. how they're doing it, right? Here in the U.S., we have our own tried and true methodology for how we find out what financial institutions somebody is probably doing business with. Again, gone are the days, I'm sure there's maybe some people still out there doing it, but you know, th there's a lot of laws and regulations that affect what you can and can't do legally there. So, and, and everything we do is completely legal and above board. So to open an account in the United States, I need either a social security number or a tax ID number. But I could theoretically, I haven't done this, Stacy, by the way, that's my wife. I could disguise tax ID numbers by burying LLC under LLC, et cetera. It's like I could try to find ways to obfuscate for sure. like my involvement. Not only could you try to, people do, right. for sure. So the way you root that out is maybe not as exciting as you may think and very tedious, but the way you root that out is you research the person, mm. right? You do a deep dive investigation on the person and you try to identify any corporate entities and by corporate, you know, any, any type of business entity, LLC, corporation, whatever, that the person is connected to or has some association with. And that's done through research, right? OSINT research, public records, you know, all kinds of things. Things that are both purely public record and things that, you know, only licensed investigators and, you know, other, other folks have access to. And then after you identify those entities, now you have to start going and checking for bank accounts and financial relationships of each of those entities. And that's kind of the way you work through it. So if I came to you, God forbid, and I hope it never happens, but if I came to you and said, Nick, I think my wife is involved in some hiding of assets, I would do what? We'd sign a contract. I'd set up a retainer with you. And, and is it by the hour kind of thing, by the project? How do you, what does an engagement with you guys look like? Well, the, the business aspect of it, where it that varies. Um, a lot of what we do is by the hour, sure. uh, just like accountants and lawyers and other professionals. Sometimes if the project is discreet enough, we look at it. We know because we've done that a thousand times what the effort is going to entail on our end. And we try to where we can, you know, give someone a flat fee and say, for example, if all you want us to do is you're giving us your spouse, let's say you're in a divorce and you or your attorney is going to give us your spouse's name, date of birth, social security number, where they currently live, et cetera, et cetera. And all they want us to do is search throughout the entire United States to see if we can find any, I call them financial relationships, because I don't want to be as specific to say bank accounts. It's not just bank accounts. To find financial relationships that have been undisclosed, right? Generally, we'll give a fixed fee for doing that. Mm -hmm. And on average, uh, you know, something like that runs around $5,000, okay? Um, but that's literally all we're doing. Right. We're doing an investigation, and we're coming back, and we're saying, 
We did this investigation, and based on that investigation, it appears to us, based on the information we've obtained, that the subject we were researching has one or more accounts with Chase Bank, one or more accounts with E-Trade, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And that's it. Okay, so let's see. Financial relationship could be checking accounts, equity accounts like E-Trade. What else? Uh, obviously, I want to get to crypto, but what are the other things before yep. we get to crypto? What are the other things that right. you would uncover that I might not be thinking of? Well, yeah. not counting crypto um, could be a safe deposit box. Right. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. It could be as simple as and often is. We've had many situations where we we provide information that says the subject has a relationship with Citibank, mm -hmm. for example. The lawyer goes ahead and sends a subpoena to Citibank and finds out, oh, well, they have a credit card right. with Citibank. That may be all it is sometimes. It also may be, as you said, though, it may be a checking account, mm -hmm. a savings account that was undisclosed, could be a safe deposit box, could be some type of investment account. Right. So that safe deposit box could have jewels, whatever in it. Yep. Okay. So crypto. Diamonds, gold, cash. Yeah. Hardware wallet for crypto, you name it. When did crypto hit your radar? When did this become a thing? Crypto became a thing, uh, you know, 2008 mm -hmm. with the publication of the Bitcoin white paper. Right. I guess I probably first took an interest in it, but it wasn't really a professional interest yet. Kind of, I don't know, 2015, 2016. And around 2017, 2018, I had what I call a rinse and repeat moment. So jumping back to... Much earlier in my career, I told you I was involved in high net worth divorces and lots of other cases that required financial investigation and financial due diligence from a long time ago. And sometime way back, we had an aha moment when, because we used to tell uh, new clients, okay, when you come in for the first meeting debriefing, I want you to bring everything you have that may have any relevance to any financial information, whatever it is, just bring it. And people started walking into the office. This is many years ago. People started walking to the office with computer towers, zip disks, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you name it and dropping them on the conference table. Right. And you better and hire went, some tech guys. Right. And we went, aha. And we very, you know, I made a conscious decision to start getting more and more uh, invested in, you know, computer forensics as a tool for financial investigation. And we very much did that over the years. Jump ahead to 2017-ish, I guess, maybe early 2018. And I had the same aha moment, you know, with crypto. I had been paying attention, reading along, doing some, you know, research just for academic interests, et cetera. And then I started to see that, okay, there's no question. This is going to be not only the next big thing, but the biggest thing ever in terms of any kind of clandestine financial transactions. And I said, we have to get all over this right away. And we started doing that probably in early 2018. So crypto, obviously, if I'm trying to hide money from my wife, crypto is a very interesting way that I might go about doing that because I can hide large amounts of money in ways that are hard to track. But that's got to have application for law enforcement, for government, for corporations. No question. No question. 
In fact, when what we know as cryptocurrency today, right, started with Bitcoin, when it hit the scene, nobody knew about it. Nobody paid attention to it. At the very beginning, it was this plaything of mathematicians, cryptographers, and techno geeks, right? Buying a pizza to in, right. in exchange for sending somebody, right. you know, a, a couple of digital coins. But it very quickly went from that to the go-to financing method for all things illicit. Silk Road, yeah, yeah. Right. The dark net exploded because of uh, crypto because finally bad actors had a way to you know receive funds from people in exchange for bad things now it's not all about that of course today it eventually evolved to go fully mainstream and you know there are trillions of dollars in crypto today that are completely 100% legit you know major financial institutions have holdings in crypto, you know, people, totally legitimate businesses accepting it. You can buy a Ferrari with Bitcoin. There have been real estate transactions now, you know, conducted. So it's, it's gone completely legit and mainstream. But make no mistake, there's still a very dark element in the crypto space. I'm not in the business of tracking or doing anything about terrorist financing or anything like that. As you said, law enforcement is keenly, keenly interested and on top of it and in a constant arms race, if you will, to keep up with the bad actors who continue to this day to use crypto as their means of financing. So is it safe to assume that you're engaged with some law enforcement agencies and other government departments? Well, we are, but for the most part, our involvement with them really, again, has nothing to do with that type of criminality, terrorist financing or anything, we get engaged with them in regards to crypto when people become victims of crypto theft or crypto scams. We do a lot of work in that area, assisting folks, mm. you know, have been hacked or been defrauded or victimized by a scam and lost a lot of money in crypto. Frequently, they'll go to law enforcement and they'll get turned away, at least initially. Why is that? Because they... Well, for a number of reasons. I mean, the two main reasons, I guess, are resources and not going to the right place. So not going to the right place is you lost $200,000 in a crypto scam. You were victimized, right? Or you were hacked. And you go to the local police department and walk in and talk to the desk sergeant and say, I want to make a, I want to make a complaint. I lost $200,000 in Bitcoin. They're not equipped to help you with that. Whose jurisdiction is that anyway? Generally speaking, you know, wherever the victim is and the crime occurred has jurisdiction. But if you're in Manhattan in your apartment and you're the victim of a crypto scam and you lost $200,000 to a hacker and you walk into the local precinct. And listen, I, look, I'm a huge fan and huge supporter of law enforcement. Of course, yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to denigrate them in, in any way. But. You walk up to the desk sergeant and say, hey, uh, my Coinbase account and my Bitcoin. Get back. He's looking at you like, uh, we can't help you with that. Right. You know, yeah. th that's not us. And and they're quick to say, and, and I understand why they're quick to say, oh, we don't have jurisdiction over that. You have to go somewhere else. Technically, they do have jurisdiction, but they're not equipped to deal with that. You know, there's 
financial crimes department at NYPD. They're very good at what they do, but it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the resources of the police department. Um, and they're not equipped to deal with that on any major scale. So people wind up going to the wrong place. That's number one. Number two reason is resources and thresholds. You call the FBI next, okay? There's no question the FBI would have jurisdiction, but if you didn't lose, officially the threshold is like $250,000. Mm. As a practical matter, even if you showed them a piece of paper that showed that you got scammed or hacked and lost $260,000, the FBI is not opening a case and we're going to get all fired up now and, and run with this case of yours where you got $260,000 with the Bitcoin stolen from you unless one of two things, and this is just, you know, our experience, right? Um, and the experience of colleagues that I speak to, unless one of two things, one, someone else has already done all the legwork to make it a silver platter case, right? If you walk into the FBI and say, I was a victim and I lost $260,000. And by the way, here's a report from my crypto computer forensic guys who are licensed private investigators and everything right down to the information you need to take the one next step to identify the hackers and go catch them is all right here. That's one exception. Right. Right. Uh, and that does happen. But those hackers are likely to be in Estonia or China or someplace else, right? Likely. Yes. Guaranteed. No, we've had cases where the hacker was in the state of Washington. We've had cases where the hacker was in Texas. We've had a couple of cases where the hacker was in Canada. And, okay, Canada is a foreign country, but you can it's a lot easier for the FBI to call their uh, counterparts up there in Canada and say, hey, we need help on this case than it is if it's, you know, Uzbekistan or Estonia or, you know, Sri Lanka. You can drive to Canada. Exactly. And the other exception to the rule is if you can go and say, I was a victim, I lost $260,000, but here, I have a lot of information about what happened to me, and it looks like the people who stole my money are doing this as a business, and I have proof to show there are 63 other victims. Right. And there's information connecting it all, all back to the same people who stole from me. That's the kind of thing that garners the interest of whether it's the FBI or the you know, attorney general, or even in some cases, a, a large local police department like NYPD financial crimes or something like that, because that they can make a big case and justify the resources. I want to get back to the high net worth divorce stuff, but what do you see the future? Is this just going to grow infinitely over the next decade? This When you say this, what... You mean crypto in general, or you mean, or you mean crypto fraud and theft? Yes. My answer is yes to both. Yeah. Crypto is no one needs me to tell them that crypto is exploding everywhere yeah. and growing exponentially every day. There's new cryptos, new services, new exchanges, new businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And the truth is, and some people find this an odd, like inverse relationship, but it seems like. The more regulation does come about in terms of regulating crypto to some extent, to the extent it can be regulated, 
the bigger it grows. Yeah. And that's because I think the big, big players, right? The banks, the big financial institutions, the, the, the big money decision makers, the more regulation there is, at least around the outskirts of crypto, if you will, the more comfortable they feel getting invested in things that involve crypto. Incredible. Let's go back to the high net worth divorce stuff. What's the largest sure. amount of money you've helped uncover in a high net worth divorce of hidden assets? I don't know that I can give a number for one specific hit, but it's in the millions and millions of dollars. I mean, we've had cases where we've located four, five, six, eight million dollars wow. of undisclosed assets for sure. Be that real estate. We had a case a number of years back where a guy on paper, right, in the divorce case, in terms of what was disclosed, he was worth, I don't know, you know, a million bucks. Uh, et cetera, when he had uh, upwards of another $4 million of real estate all over Florida, as you mentioned earlier, you know, under all different names, aliases, you know, uh, different LLCs buried under two or three, they had rental properties all, all over Florida where three, four plus million dollars. We've had cases where people had undisclosed businesses or an undisclosed interest in a business that was worth millions of dollars. What's the look on your client's face when you divulge that to them? Is it like they just, oh. <laughs> I'm not always face to face with them. Yeah. Oftentimes I'm dealing with their lawyers and a lot of this, you know, if I was speaking directly to the client, uh, to the extent it was pre COVID, not everybody was constantly on zoom and video, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> video chats, et cetera. But excited is an understatement <laughs> when, and it's twofold. And I have to say this because there's two elements to their, happiness and excitement. The first element is purely financial. Oh my goodness, you found $6 million that no one knew about and I'm entitled to half of it. Right. That's 3 million bucks. <laughs> and the other half of it is, oh, we're just, we're just really going to get the other party in a whole heap of trouble now right. <laughs> because they've signed usually by that point, if I'm involved often, I should say, not usually, They've signed sworn statements of net worth and they've signed off on other documents, quote, under the penalty of perjury and never listed any of these assets. Look, we've had cases where we found, a, you know, a, a bank account with whatever, uh, $62,000 in it, let's say, right, that someone didn't disclose on their sworn statement of net worth. It could maybe, depending on how diverse their other finances are how recent the last transaction in that account was, they might get away with saying, oops, forgot about that one. But when you've got, I think it was 13 or 14 active rental properties in the state of Florida that you didn't disclose that are buried under a heap of LLCs, but you clearly own them. You're paying somebody to cut the the grass. Yeah. Right. That happens every month. You're not, you haven't forgotten about that. You're not getting away with oops. (laughs) And some judge is going to have a field day with you because you're now guilty of perjury, which is a felony in New York and I think most other places. So in the matrimonial high net worth uh, or other divorce sense, you know, people get they get excited on both of those fronts. In your experience, is it more often the men or the women hiding assets? Okay, I have to be careful. I don't get in trouble here. So in my experience, it's the men, but. My experience is colored by the fact that 
I am dealing with high net worth divorce cases, right? And statistically, I'm hired much more frequently by the wife than I am the husband in those cases. And I think that's because statistically, if you look at high net worth couples, of course, this has changed a lot over the years and probably continues to change. But statistically, I think the husband is more often the, quote, moneyed spouse and either the higher earner or more in control of the finances, etc. At least that's my anecdotal experience. So, yes, we see the husband, right, hiding assets much more. But that's just because of the context in, in which we're hired most often. Fair enough. And we certainly have had it the other way, too. Yeah. yeah. So, Nick, if I were in this situation, I came to you, I'd be like, okay, what do I want in a private investigator? I want somebody who's street smart, but I want somebody who is articulate and refined and can talk to me like a professional. And you've got the perfect combination of those things. That's the feeling I'm getting. Well, thanks. And I, and I saw on your website that, you know, you made a point of calling out that you play by the rules. Always. And so I'm interested in kind of what is, what's the spectrum of professionalism in the world of private investigation and how do you make sure that you're branding yourself as the ultimate professional therein? The spectrum, unfortunately, like many other businesses and professions, the spectrum is broad. And still to this day, despite all of the uh, legal changes in the last 20 years, trying to protect people's privacy, financial information, et cetera, et cetera, and all the education and training that private investigative associations, such as Aldenese's, the New York State Association of Private Investigators, have tried to do, right, to educate the licensed private investigators about playing by the rules and following rules, there are still cowboys out there, right? People who won't follow the rules, will break the rules, walk all over and stomp on the rules, etc. There is still plenty of those people out there. And I would say to anyone who's considering hiring a private investigator, be very careful. It's almost more important, as hard as this is to believe, from a customer, from a client point of view, it's almost more important to know how your investigator is doing what they're doing or that they're doing it legally and not breaking any laws in the process of doing whatever it is they're doing than it is to get good results. Okay, I, I like to say, and I tell clients this, it's results by the rules or not at all because you don't want the opposite. Mm -hmm. If you hire an investigator and they break all kind of laws and go out there and get you some fantastic financial information about the other party, okay, that financial information may be very valuable to you, but you may very well, and this is not just my opinion, there's like legal cases out there, you know, that support this. You may very well be implicated in whatever criminality that mm. investigator engaged in to get you that information. Because he's your agent? Because he's your agent, and, and particularly if you had any sense or knowledge of what they were doing, the classic cases. Uh, take it out of the financial area. The classic case is the wiretap, mm. right? Wiretapping is a crime in every state in the union. And if you hire a private investigator 
and they say, well, I'm going to get you the information you need, but the only way I can think of to get that information is I'm going to go out there and I'm going to wiretap the parties you asked me to investigate, okay? And you say, yeah, sure, okay. And he goes and does that or she goes and does that. You're in a lot of trouble if they get caught because, <laughs> you know, they're out there committing felonies on your behalf as your agent to get you information and you knew about it. And it doesn't matter if you knew that it was illegal. It just matters that you knew that that's what they were doing. It's the same thing with the financial investigation stuff. So it's very, very important to hire somebody that not only knows where the legal boundaries are, but is going to follow them and respect them and stay, you know, color inside the lines. And we get people who are very frustrated sometimes to say, well, wait a minute. You told us this information, but we want we need more. Well, we need the account numbers. We need this. Yeah. We need the, this and that. Can't you get us that? Said, no, not legally. Mm. And that's what matters. And so during a divorce, which has got to be the most emotionally charged times in life for almost everyone. I mean, there's maybe a few other more stressful situations humans can go through, but very few. People are, are prone, especially when millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are on the table. People are prone to make terrible decisions. And even when there's not. <laughs> so you see people doing these things, signing off on committing fraud by signing financial documents that are untruthful, by letting their emotions permit them to tell their private investigator to do things that are illegal. You just made a fantastic point, and I don't know if you realize it or not. If you're going through a divorce and you've got $20 million and you're not willing to pony up and say, yeah, okay, here's all the information about my $20 million so that the other party can have their share, $10 million, that's that can't just be about a financial decision, right? Because if you can't live on 10, you can't live on 20. So what's the difference? There's always more to those bad decisions, in my opinion, than just the numbers crunching, right? There's the, I got 20 million, and I'm not giving the other party half or anywhere close to half. So, you know, if someone's got 20, but they're only going to disclose five, it's just my opinion from seeing this over the years. Sure, there's a financial aspect to that bad decision, but there's a lot more than just a financial decision going on. Yeah, so beware. That's that's the emotional, you're not getting, you're not getting half the money. And that's a dangerous instinct because that leads to bad decisions. Very dangerous. And like we said, people wind up getting in, in big trouble for not disclosing this stuff. Yeah, that's great. Great insights, Nick. Nick Himanitis, president of the NGH Group. Where can our listeners find out more about you? On our website, thengh.group.com. All right. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Nick, this was fascinating. Thanks for sharing your time and your experience with us. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. 